If you have a Bible, grab it. Go to Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's some here on the desk or table here. They're our gift to you. Take it, give it away, do whatever you want to do with it. Uh, download Bible app on your phone. Uh, we love to teach through books of the Bible here at West Village. And so we are going through the gospel of Matthew and we are coming towards the end of Matthew chapter 13. And before we jump in this morning, I actually want to just take a moment of pause. So as you turn there and answer this question, which is why is it that we teach through books of the Bible? Uh, why do we go verse by verse through books of the Bible? I, I was actually having a conversation with uh, another pastor in town this week, we were having coffee and he asked what I was preaching on this week. And I said, well, we're in week 69 of the gospel of Matthew. And he's like, well, what are you guys calling your series? I'm like, well, we're calling it the gospel of Matthew. Uh, we, we spent hours as a creative team uh, coming up with ideas and that's what we decided uh, to call it. So yeah. Um, anyway, why do we do this? Why, why is it that we teach through books of the Bible? And uh, there's lots of reasons. I want to give you two reasons this morning that I think are going to flow into uh, the topic that we have in front of us that Jesus is going to bring to the table. The first one is this. We believe that the Bible is the word of God. Uh, we believe that the book you are holding is inspired, breathed out uh, by God himself, and he gives it to us to reveal to us who he is. There's lots of ways that God reveals himself to us. Uh, ultimately, it's through the person and work of Jesus, which is what this word points to. He is the ultimate word of God. But we do believe that God has given us his word so that we can know him, love him better, live in light of his goodness and grace better. And so what that means for us, the way that impacts uh, what we do on a Sunday or what, what, the way it impacts us as a community, we love babies at West Village. They're so great. So great. No, I'm just kidding. I can, I can just keep going. I will get there. Don't worry about me. Um, but the way that this impacts us as a community is that we, we actually think like when I get up to speak on a Sunday or whoever's preaching gets up to speak on a Sunday, uh, we believe firmly that I, we have nothing good to say. Uh, that, that I can't come up with an idea that is going to change and transform you, but that God spoke, he gave us his word, and that this word actually has the ability to change, transform, cut to the heart, convict, uh, you know, bless, all the things that the word of God does. And so we don't want to come on a Sunday with our ideas. We want to come on a Sunday. And really the job of anyone who ever teaches the Bible, whether it's on a Sunday, uh, in a church gathering, whether it's in a, in a community group setting where you're sitting around together, whether it's in a DNA setting, is simply this. It's to expose what the Word of God says. This is why we call it expositional preaching. It just means expose. So on a Sunday, hopefully what is happening when we're up here is we're just exposing to you what the word says. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Uh, we believe that because the Bible is the word of God, that it is important for us to teach all of it. It's important for us to teach all of it. Or as some would say, we want to teach the whole counsel of God. So this is why we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Because it's, you come up against stuff that I'll be honest, if, if I was just sitting, you know, in, in a room somewhere coming up with all the things we're going to talk about, uh, you know, this week or this month or this year, some of the stuff that we come up against, I would just, I would never choose. But it forces us into situations and circumstances where we have to actually talk about some really hard things. And that's going to be the case this morning. Uh, this morning, as we come to uh, the text we're in in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus has got some, some hard words for us. Uh, some heavy words. Uh, but again, we believe this is the word of God. We believe that, that the reason that Jesus spoke these, that the reason that God preserved these for us is because they're for our benefit. It's not because he doesn't love us, but it's because he does love us. And so let me just set up where we are going to go this morning, where things are going to go. If you recall where we've been in Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 11 and chapter 12, there's a number of instances whereby Jesus is having all these interactions with all these different groups of people. Uh, ultimately, these get summarized through the lens of both the crowd or the disciples, either the crowd or the disciples. Uh, and the crowds continue to come to Jesus, they continue to ask questions, but they continue to not understand. They continue to walk away. They continue to be sent away. They continue to be rebuked by Jesus. But then there's this other group of people, the disciples. And it's the disciples who Jesus actually embraces. It's the disciples who Jesus actually, you know, in Matthew's narrative, on some level demonstrate that they quote-unquote get it. Uh, we see kind of the, the, the high point of this at the end of chapter 12, where Jesus describes uh, the disciples as his, uh, his family. He says, those who do the will of my father in heaven, those are my brothers, my mother, my sisters. 
And so there's this dichotomy that Matthew is trying to expose or you know, show to us, which is, which are you? Are you the crowds or are you the disciples? And then we come into Matthew chapter 13 and we have a series of parables where Jesus is telling us all of these stories about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And as we've already said many times, but I'll say it again this morning, parables are like a window. They're a window into things unseen. Oftentimes we think of parables as cute stories with spiritual message. And to some degree, there's some truth to that, but they're much more than that. Uh, parables are windows. They're windows, in this case, into the kingdom of heaven, where Jesus pulls back the veil a little bit, gives us a sense of what God is like, what the kingdom is like. But even more than that, they're, they're windows into our hearts. Well, we hear the parables that Jesus speaks, and they, they cause us, they force us to ask really hard questions about ourselves, about where we stand, about what we think, about what we believe, about how we view Jesus, about how we view the kingdom. And ultimately, the meta question that Jesus is trying to get at through these parables that Matthew's trying to get us to consider, and he just wants us to wrestle with in this deep place of our being is, which are you? Who are you? Are you the crowds? Or are you the disciples? Are you the crowds who, when you get an answer you don't like, when you get a thought that you don't like, when... When something confronts your modern sensibilities, you just hit the eject button and run. Or are you the disciples who don't always understand, don't always get it, but on some level, you just know this is where truth is found. And even though I don't understand, even though I don't completely get it, I'm going in this direction. I'm following Jesus. That's the question we have to wrestle with. And this morning, if it hasn't been hard up to this point, it is about to get very, very, very hard. Very hard. Because Jesus, in the most stark of terms, is going to lay out the finality of this decision for us. In the most starkest, most striking way, Jesus is going to say, some of you will be in my kingdom and some of you will not. Some of you will be in my kingdom and some of you will be in a place that he describes like this, a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The theological nomenclature, the word that is often associated with where Jesus is talking about is the word hell. It's a hard word to hear from Jesus. Often when we think of Jesus, we don't associate him with ideas of hell. Often when we think of Jesus, we associate him with always talking about love and inclusivity. And he certainly is all of those things and definitely teaches all of those things. But it would be unwise of us to think that that is the totality of what Jesus speaks. In fact, if you were to just collect all of the teachings of Jesus and compile them and rank them or stack them up, here is what you will find. That Jesus speaks of hell more than he speaks of love. In fact, if you were to take a collection of all the verses and, and all the, the biblical preachers and writers and speakers and take all of the words spoken about hell and pile them up, here's what you are going to discover, that Jesus spoke of hell more than all of the other Bible writers, preachers, speakers combined. Why? I don't know for certain, but, but as I was reading this week, I read one author who said this, it's not going to be on the screen, but he said, if it wasn't Jesus who taught us about hell, I am not sure that we would believe it. It had to be him. Why? Because this is so hard. This is so difficult. I'm going to stand up here and preach, but you, you need to understand, I don't take joy or delight in doing this. 
In fact, if I'm honest, and, and I will be honest with you about this, if I could remove this doctrine from the Bible, I would do so. And I would argue that anyone in here who does not wrestle with this on some level, that does not have emotional turmoil or a sense of just, just hard it's hard to deal with. It's hard to swallow. It's hard, it's hard to reconcile this. You're not being honest. And so I think somehow, and again, I don't pretend to know the mind of God and I don't have a verse to back this up, but I think somehow in God's wisdom, he knew that this is how this doctrine was going to be received. These ideas were going to be received. And he said it has to come from the mouth of Jesus because if it comes from anywhere else, they're not going to believe it. And so what I want you to hear this morning as we come to this text, that these are the words of Jesus. These are the warnings of Jesus. And as he has been doing, he continues to do in these verses this morning, which is ask the question, which one are you? Are you the crowds or are you the disciples? Let's jump in. Matthew Chapter 13, picking up in verse 47, Matthew records Jesus as saying this, once again, so Jesus has been preaching a series of parables. This is the last parable in Matthew chapter 13. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and it caught all kinds of fish. So here, Jesus is giving us a picture of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Now, I'm not a fisherman. Don't laugh at me, Rob. I'm not a fisherman, but I'm going to do my best uh, fisherman impression here. I actually went fishing with Rob once, and we, it wasn't a great day, and he reminded me it's why they call it fishing, not catching, Chris. Uh, but this here is a good way to go fishing, okay? The kind of net that Jesus is talking about as he describes the kingdom of heaven is what you might be familiar with or have heard of called a drag net. So this is a, a wide, big, long, tall net. It's an immense net that would be weighted on the bottom and it would be fastened either between uh, two boats or a pole or even on the shore at times in a boat and it would make a sweeping uh, you know, arc or circle in the water. And the, the, the point that Jesus wants us to see is that this net, this drag Dragnet, it's going to catch everything that comes in its path. In fact, he, he says that. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down uh, into the lake, and it caught, look at what he says, all kinds of fish. So it catches everything in its path. It catches the good fish. It catches the bad fish. It catches the, the, you know, the, the rubber tire that was chucked in the bottom of the lake. It catches everything in its wake. And what is Jesus' point? Well, again, context matters. He's been speaking a number of parables. If you remember from a couple Sundays ago, he talked about the kingdom of heaven like a garden, and inside the garden there was both weed and weeds. Uh, there was good fruit and there was bad fruit. There were seeds that were planted that bore good fruit, and then there were, there were seeds that were planted that were, were dead. They got choked out, and they were still there in the garden. And what Jesus is trying to say here is that right now, in this moment... As you look at the kingdom of heaven, as you look at you know, God's kingdom, what he's doing in the world, there's all kinds of fish. There's all kinds of people. There's all kinds of things that are in the kingdom. Uh, St. Augustine had a kind of a helpful way of thinking about this. He, he, he used this language that there's both the visible and the invisible church. Uh, the visible church is the church that we see. It's this. As I look out at you, it's a, as you look out at the world, you see the gathering, the people of God. That's the visible church. But there's an invisible church. The visible church is the church that gets caught up in the net. It's everybody. It's we all love Jesus. We all come. We all sing. We all pray. We all do our thing. But Augustine's contention was that there's also an invisible church. What's the invisible church? The invisible church is those who are actually saved. Those who are actually regenerate. Those who actually know and love Jesus. Now, don't miss the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Remember, we have a garden with both wheat and weeds. We have a, or a field, rather, with wheat and weeds. We have a field with all kinds of seed that gets planted, that births all kinds of different fruits, some that lasts and some that doesn't. And here we have a large net, again, where there's all kinds of fish that are caught up in it. 
And again, the question that we have to wrestle with, I'm just going to keep asking it because you got to keep wrestling with it, is which are you? Are you the crowd? Are you the disciples? Are you the, the wheat or are you the weeds? Are you, in this instance, the good fish or the, the bad fish? Don't miss Jesus' point. It's possible to sit here, to listen, to participate in every way and not know Jesus. Not know him. Jesus goes on. He says this in verse 48. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up to the shore and then they sat down and they collected the good fish in baskets but threw away the bad. Uh, So we have this net. It's collecting everything. The fishermen have a full net so now they're going to pull it into the shore to sort it. They pull it into the shore. Look at what Jesus says. He says, they sat down and they sorted the fish. It's, it's interesting that he throws that in there. They sat down. There's a sense in which the fishermen were careful. They were selective. They, they inspected what was in the net. They were thoughtful. They literally looked at each and every fish that they pulled up and asked the question, is this a good fish or is this a bad fish? And then what do they do? The good fish, they put in baskets, the bad fish, they discard or they throw away. Again, Jesus is, is giving us this sense that, that, that there's this moment that is coming whereby we are going to have to make a decision about what we really believe. Again, parables are windows into the heart, right? They're, they're windows into who we are, how we live, what we think, what we really believe. We have to wrestle with this. Do I believe Jesus? Do I trust Jesus? Do I believe what he's saying? Am I a part of the crowd? Am I one of the disciples? Am I, you know, the weed or am I weeds? Am I good fish? Am I bad fish? What am I? What am I? Who am I? Where do I fit in all this? Jesus explains the parable, perhaps in in the most starkest of terms, of all the parables that he's preached in Matthew chapter 13. Look at what he says in verse 49. This is how it will be at the end of the age. What does he mean? The Bible teaches Christians believe that there is a day of judgment or a day of reckoning that is coming. Uh, The book of Hebrews chapter 9 talks about everybody destined to live one time, die, and then face judgment. That there is a reality whereby we will all die. 10 out of 10 people die. And according to Jesus, not only do 10 out of 10 die, 10 out of 10 die, and then 10 out of 10 will face judgment. Just as the net was dragged up onto the shore, just as the disciples sat down and with great care, meticulously sorted through what was caught up in the net, so too, when we die, when the net is finally dragged in, Jesus will sort us. We will be judged. Which are you? Look at what he says next. The angels will come and they will separate the wicked from the righteous. What does Jesus mean when he says the angels will come? I'm not actually sure. I'm not sure on the mechanics of what this means. But what we do know is that somehow, some way, some shape or form, angels are involved in the judgment of Jesus and the ultimate judgment that Jesus will have over us. Uh, we saw this earlier in verse 41 of Matthew chapter 13. We see this in Revelation chapter 14, multiple times through the book of Revelation. Uh, we see it again in Matthew chapter 25. Go there really quickly. Turn, keep your finger in Matthew chapter 13 and slide over to Matthew chapter 25. And there's a, an, another parable or another image that Jesus is going to give us of what this day looks like. And here's what it says. I'll just read the verses in their totality, picking up in verse 31. Matthew records, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels, there we go, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. 
All the nations will be gathered before him like in a net and he will separate. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So there's another image Jesus is giving us. We have wheat, we have weeds, we have good fish, we have bad fish. Now we have sheep and we have goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So again, we have a picture of what happens to the wheat. We have a picture of what happens to the sheep. We have a picture of what happens to the good fish. And he says this in verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or, or thirsty or give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you, invite you in and, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go visit you? Verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left or the goats or the weeds or the bad fish, Hear these words, friends. Hear them. Listen to what Jesus says. Depart from me. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a hard word. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And also, they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And in verse 46, they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. Back to Matthew chapter 13, verse 49. There is a word. The word is separate. Separate the wicked from the righteous. What that word indicates is that Jesus will actually take the wicked, the bad fish, the weeds, the goats, out from among the righteous. Out from among the the wheat, out from among the good fish. And again, Jesus continues to warn us that a day is coming where this will be divided. There will be a separation. There will be a division. Which side will you be on? Friends, I plead with you to consider that question. Jesus is warning us not because he despises us, but because he loves us. And then he goes on, and I'll be honest, I'd love to just skip to verse 51. And if I did, hopefully somebody in this room would say, hey, sign us all. You skipped one. Because these are some of the hardest words to read, to hear. But they're here. They came from the mouth of Jesus. 
that were preserved by the Holy Spirit for us. The angels will come, they will separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about hell. He's talking about the reality that we will all face at some point of judgment whereby Jesus will look and peer into our hearts. He will see those who know him. He will see those who love him and he will see those who don't and those who love him will have his kingdom forever. And those who do not will not. They will live in eternity apart from God. Uh, There's a lot I could say about the doctrine of hell as it is taught in the Bible. And while I would love to do extensive teaching on this this morning, I do not have time. And so what I want to do in brief is just highlight four things that the Bible teaches and we believe here at West Village about the issue of hell. These four will be on the screen behind me and I will hit these quickly. But the first one is that we believe hell is real. In other words, despite the metaphorical a depiction of hell that we see all throughout the Bible in Jesus' words here this morning, we believe that hell is not a metaphor. We believe that this is a real place. Uh, We saw this in Matthew chapter 25, but uh, it was a place that God initially uh, designed for Satan and his angels. However, it is also the place that those who choose to reject the grace of Jesus will spend eternity. The second thing we believe is this, and I just alluded to it, but we believe hell is eternal. Uh, Just as heaven is eternal, so too is hell eternal. That God made us for eternity, that we are not merely physical, but we are also spiritual. And that our souls never, they never cease. They will go forever, either uh, in heaven with Jesus, experiencing the fullness of his glory and grace, or apart from him. Uh, The third thing that we believe about hell that is taught explicitly here, that this is a place of separation. And Jesus is making that clear in Matthew chapter 13, that God will separate us. And then the fourth thing is that we believe that hell is a place where every ounce of God's grace and his goodness is removed. Uh, Now let me just pause here for a second and be clear about what I am trying to say. Uh, oftentimes, the language that is used to describe hell is metaphorical language. It's not literal language. It's, it's language that comes in the form of parable or apocalyptic uh, literature. And so it's not necessarily meant to be interpreted literally. And let me give you a positive example to help you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, there's many times throughout the Bible where uh, the, the God's characteristics are described for us in physical terms. Uh, So the help of God is often referred to as God gathering his people up under their wing like a mother hen would gather her chicks. Now, do we believe that God actually has a wing? No. But this is the way that the Bible and the Bible writers and the Spirit of God has, has communicated to us to give us the ability to understand something that is beyond what we can actually understand. So to understand something that is eternal, that is spiritual, that is beyond our, our mind's comprehension. This is similar to how the Bible describes hell. And so a lot of times what can happen when we think about hell is the the metaphors, the imagery, and a lot of times cultural baggage gets in the way of us understanding exactly what is being described. And a lot of times the cultural portrayal of hell could be nothing further from the truth of what the scriptures teach us hell is actually like. So a lot of times when we think of hell, what we think of is a, a giant 
fire pit and Satan and his minions are running rough shot. You've got these short little guys with pointy horns and tails and pitchforks and goatees. I don't know why they would have goatees, but they seem to have goatees. And everybody in hell is like on a human rotisserie being roasted and tormented forever by Satan and his minions. There's nothing biblical about that image of hell. In fact, you need to understand this. Satan is not Lord over hell. Jesus is Lord over hell. And some of us have this vision of hell where it looks like God up in heaven, you know, twisting his evil mustache while people suffer and experience pain unending. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, We know this because this is what's revealed to us in the scriptures. It's God's desire that none should perish. None, not one. So what then is hell? Uh, What is it? Hell is a place where all the goodness of God has been completely and utterly removed. Where all God's common grace is removed. Where everything good is removed. Where all the light is removed. Hell is what happens when God takes his hand off of us and gives us what we really want. And make no mistake about it, the images, the language, the metaphors... They all tell us something. It's anguish. It's hardship. It's pain. It's hurt. It's, it's suffering. It's, it's longing. I, I went to a funeral yesterday for a friend. Uh, my family went on a road trip to Tacoma, and we, we went, on a, uh, went to a funeral of a good friend of mine who uh, ended his life. He committed suicide nine days ago. Married, been married for seven, eight, nine years, I think. Four young children between the ages of two and ten. Pastoring in a church. The anguish, the pain, the the mental anguish that he experienced. He grew up in an abusive home with an abusive father. He did uh, three tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. The PTSD, the darkness, the heaviness, the anguish, it was, it was so much. It, it was so much that he, he sat in his office, tormented by these thoughts, by these feelings. And no matter how much of God's grace was in his life, no, how to, no matter how much he thought about his, his wife and his kids and the love of Jesus, couldn't not do it. The darkness was so real. That's a picture of what it looks like when you can't even see the grace of God anymore. Jesus is saying a day is coming where there will be separation, there will be division. Which are you? Who are you? The crowds, the disciples, the wheat, the weeds, the sheep, the goats, the good fish, the bad fish. Which are you? I can only imagine that there are a lot of questions about this. And so what I want to do is just as best I can with the time I have this morning is answer one question, and that is, how could God do this? If you're a thinking, feeling human being, I don't care how long you've been in church, that might actually be to your disadvantage this morning, according to some of the verses we've read. You've got to be saying, what? I don't like this. I want verse 50 out. 
Why? How? How, how could God do this? And I, and I want to try as best I can, as sensitively as I can, with the, the most up, uh, utmost compassion and respect that I can, knowing that I'm on, I'm on your side, okay? I'm on your side on this. I'm, I'm asking that question as I come to this text. As I'm sitting in Starbucks this morning, looking at all these people, serving coffee and just doing their thing, and I'm going, what? How is this possible? I'm, I'm, I'm with you. But at the same time, it's here, and Jesus said it, so I believe it's true, and I'm gonna submit to it because he is Lord and I am not. So here's, here's my best crack at it. I, I firmly, wholeheartedly believe that there is a faulty premise that is etched into that question. You see, this question, how could God do this? This, this makes a massive assumption. See, the assumption that is etched into the question, how could God do this, assumes what? That I'm the good fish. That I'm the wheat. That I don't deserve to be discarded or thrown away. But on what basis do I make that assessment? You know, it's interesting. If you think back to a couple weeks ago, we talked about this reality of God's grace whereby, yes, there's, there's a field, and yes, there's good seed that has been sown that has produced wheat, good fruit, that loves God. People who are in the kingdom love Jesus. And then there's these weeds. There's the brokenness. There's the evil. There's the hardship. There's the pain. There's the suffering. There's the funerals you have to go to and the widows with four kids. And you're like, I want the weeds gone. Get them out of here. Why are you waiting to, to take all these weeds out of the garden? We long for that. You long for that. I long for that. And the reason we said a couple weeks ago, the reason Jesus has been waiting as long as he's been waiting is for this moment right here. It's his grace. It's his kindness that we would actually hear the gospel and respond to it. And then Jesus says, okay, I'm going I'm to give you exactly what you want. I'm going to come in. I'm going to take out the weeds. I'm going to take the net, and I'm going to sort the bad fish. I'm going to get all the junk out so that's all, all that's left is the good fish. And he does this, and he says this, and then we get mad at him. Why? Because what we forget is that it's our hearts that are the field where the weeds grow. See, our problem with this teaching is not intellectual. I could prove it to you. If I said to you, there's Adolf Hitler out on the road. I'm going to go punch him in the face. Some of you go, good, he deserved it. And then I said to you, there's a seven-year-old girl. I'm going to go punch her in the face. You would say, how could you do that, you awful man? And you would be right. Why? Not because of the punch, but because of the act of who the punch was against. Our sin isn't against Hitler. It isn't against a seven-year-old girl. It's against God a holy, righteous God. The problem we have with hell isn't the intellectual aspects of it. It's the spiritual aspect where we think, it's our pride, where we think we can stand before a holy God and declare ourselves wheat, sheep, good fish. And it's that disposition of the heart that will cause you to reject Jesus and be separated. Which are you? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, says this, two quotes. The first one, there is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. And then he goes on to say, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. 
They that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find it. Those who knock, it is open. In other words, what C.S. Lewis is saying is Jesus will give you exactly what you want. If you don't think you need him, you will not have him in the end. The grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus is that he's giving us a chance. You can you can shake your fist at him right now in this moment. Or you could say, God, what grace it is of yours that you would allow me to sit here this morning and hear these words and respond to them. It's amazing, you know, I don't want to make this about yesterday, but yesterday we were at this funeral and the wife, Lisa, stands up. And it was hard. She was crying, obviously, and she, she was really raw. She said, it was God's grace that I got to spend the amount of time with Randy that I had. I, I, I thought I had 40 more years, but that was never promised to me. It's God's grace that you're sitting here right now. Which are you, the crowds or the disciples? There's one more aspect of this that I want to just quickly touch on, and that is this. Why does Jesus teach on this? Why, why does he come to us and teach on hell. As I've already alluded to, I think one of the reasons is not because he's vindictive, but because he's loving, gracious, and kind and desperately wants us to respond. But here's the other thing that I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least acknowledge, and that is this, that he knows exactly what it feels like. So lest we ever accuse God of not knowing what it feels like, lest we ever accuse God of of sitting up in heaven, twisting his evil mustache, looking at those who have chosen to reject the grace of Jesus, those who are going to spend eternity apart from him, those who are the bad fish, the weeds, the goats, lest we ever accuse God of taking delight and joy in that, we would be remiss to not acknowledge that Jesus himself has experienced everything that we are talking about this morning, and it's that that leads to him wanting to share. He knows what it feels like. As Jesus comes to the end of his life, most of you know, he's eventually going to go to the cross. That's where the gospel of Matthew is going. Jesus goes to the cross. And there's this picture for us that is painted of what it looks like when Jesus goes to the cross. The apostle Paul talks about it in in really like firm terms where he says, Jesus actually becomes our sin. So you have this perfect man, the God man, actually becoming our sin. He's hanging on the cross. And in the moment that he, he's hanging on the cross, he becomes our sin. He, he, he's taken on all of our sin. All of his goodness, all of his obedience is gone. And, and the sin is there. And there's this picture that is painted for us where, where Jesus cries out from the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, as Jesus became our sin, as he's hanging on the cross, there's this, there's this thing, this reality that happens whereby the Father turns his face away from the Son, away from Jesus. In fact, the gospel writers, when they record this event, they actually say it was the middle of the day, and they say it became dark. All the light was removed. All the grace of God removed. All the goodness of God removed. And what was that moment It was hell. See, we've experienced slivers of the grace of God. Slivers of it here. Marred by sin, marred by the weeds, marred by brokenness. But Jesus experienced the fullness of the grace of God, but he also experienced the fullness of what it looks like when God turns his face away. Here's what I'm trying to say to us this morning. That it's actually God's grace. 
he experienced hell so that you and I don't need to experience hell. That if we would humble ourselves, that if we would come to Jesus, that it would be his death for us, his grace for us, or or we can choose to reject his grace, choose to go our own way, when what Jesus is offering us is the kingdom. Which are you? Which am I? Which are we? The crowds or the disciples? I'm going to invite the band to come up as I do. I want to close with a question. The question is this. I mean, that's a really bad place to end, right? How do we respond? How do we respond to this? Well, beautiful, God in his grace actually tells us right here, the last few verses, look at what it says, verse 51. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked. In other words, have you heard, he's talking to the disciples, have you understood everything I've said about the king, about who I am, all the division, the good fish, the bad, everything. Do you understand it? Look at what they say, the disciples. They say, yes, good answer. It's a good answer. Verse 52, look at what he says. He said, therefore, Every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, okay, you've heard me teach about the kingdom, you understand it, and now you are a disciple. You are someone who's learned all that I've taught. You're ready to go out. Look at what he says. He says, you're ready to go out and do what? You're like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Don't miss this, but if you go back just a couple of verses, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven like a treasure buried in a field. You sell everything to get the buried treasure. You have a treasure within you. In other words, what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, I recognize that this is hard. This is a hard teaching. But you understand the teaching. You get the teaching. You, you, you comprehend it. You've been discipled. You're a learner. So now what? You've received the kingdom. So what do we do with it? We bring out the treasure stored up in our heart and we share it with others. In other words, what's our response to this, to Jesus' teaching? Friends, if you have an ounce of compassion you got to tell everyone. you got to tell everyone. we got to tell people. Our, our city needs to know. People need to know. Your neighbors need to know. Your friends, they need to know. They need to know. What are we so afraid of? What are we so worried about? We have the treasure. We have it. We live in one of the least church cities in North America. There's so many people here that don't know. They don't know. We share property lines with people that don't know, cubicles with people that don't know, workspaces with people that don't know. They don't know. Jesus says it matters. One last story from yesterday. My friend Randy, he's in Iraq. He's not a follower of Jesus. Became friends with a man named Ernesto who was one of his commanding officers. Ernesto was a devoted follower of Jesus. Randy just, he he thought Christians were lame, weak wussies. He met Ernesto and he was in awe that this strong yet tender man knew Jesus. And so Randy and Ernesto began a friendship. And Ernesto started to tell Randy about Jesus. And in 2010, Ernesto 
and Randy were hanging out in their room late at night, and Ernesto had to leave to go back to his room, and as he was leaving, he said to Randy, he said, Randy, I want you to know something. This book right here, this is where you're going to find truth. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Everything you're looking for is right here. You need to read this book. You're going to find truth. The next day, Ernesto got sent out, and he was killed. Randy took those words to heart. And he, he read the book. He read about Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus. And God did some amazing things in the life of Randy. He did some amazing things through the life of Randy. He did some amazing things in my life through Randy. Just from yesterday, being at the funeral and hearing about the grace of God in, in Randy and the grace of God in Lisa and the grace of God through so many people. I went home last night and I just, as we were driving home, it was like 10 hours of commuting for like two and a half or three hours of being in Tacoma, but it was worth it. And I do it again today because I couldn't stop hugging my wife and my kids. And I couldn't stop thanking Jesus for his grace. God, thank you for Ernesto, who had the courage to tell Randy. And thank you, Spirit, for saving Randy so that his wife could stand up yesterday and by the grace of God, through tears, say, I know this is going to be hard, but Jesus is enough. grace we have in our hearts to share. Father, thank you that you are good. That you love us. You love us enough to tell us the truth. Most people lie to us. Most people tell us everything's going to be okay when it's not okay. you don't. You love us too much. Help us to feel that right now in this moment. Help us to feel your love. You're not yelling at us, turn or burn. You're like a dad with his wayward kids. Come home. Come home. Come home, friends. Come home. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.